Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. The backdrop is his super yacht, private plane, soccer team, private investment empire, and luxury lifestyle befitting the richest man in the UK, billionaire Joe Lewis. And now he's one of the most prominent targets of an insider trading prosecution by the Manhattan U.S. Attorney's Office. Prosecutors have charged the 86-year-old billionaire with passing tips to his employees, his friends, and his girlfriend, sometimes on board his superyacht, which he can no longer set foot on because it's part of the collateral for his $300 million record-setting bail package. Joining me is Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison, who was at the arraignment when Lewis pleaded not guilty. Eva, tell us a little about him. Joe Lewis is a 86-year-old billionaire from the UK. He's lived in the Bahamas for decades. He is a man who has a knack for making money. At 15, he started working at his family's cafe and turned that into a multi-million dollar restaurant chain. Then he had a go at currency trading and turned those millions into billions, betting against the British pound. But he has made his fortune most recently through the Tavistock Group. It's a private investment management firm that has stakes in 200 businesses in 13 countries all over the world. In his home country of the UK, he's most well known for his controlling interest in the North London football club, Tottenham Hotspur. And he has a 321-foot yacht named Aviva. I don't know my yachts. How big is that? It is huge. This yacht was built around a paddle court that is in the middle of the boat because he loves to play paddle every single day. It has eight individual guest suites, helipad, gym, all the bells and whistles that you could imagine for a super yacht. This thing is huge and he spends a lot of his time on it. Prosecutors allege there was an interesting, actually incriminating conversation on the yacht at dinner in September of 2019. Because Joe spent so much time on his yacht, he would have a endless rotation of visitors coming on. Employees from his biotech hedge fund, different executives from companies that either he personally or his firm had invested in. And they would sit down and have dinner and talk about business and everything else. On this particular night, they were talking about a company called Marathi, which is a biotech company that his hedge fund had invested in. And the company was getting ready to release some positive results of a medical trial. But they weren't planning to do it until the following month and prosecutors allege that he took that information and then passed it on to his two longtime private jet pilots, Patrick O'Connor and Brian Waugh. They traded on that and allegedly made quite a bit of money. He also passed on that information to his girlfriend at the time. Her name is Caroline Carter. She's a model from the US Virgin Islands. He actually introduced her to trading, helped her open a brokerage account, allegedly gave her money to start that brokerage account, and then her investment strategies were essentially mirroring his. That's the case of the prosecutors. 
Do prosecutors say what his motive was? Because he wasn't making any money off the tips, nor did he need any money. That's why this case is a little bit unusual compared to other insider trading cases. You're right, Joe Lewis is a very rich man. He's one of the richest men in the UK. He has an estimated net worth of $6.6 billion. So the personal benefit he was getting, prosecutors allege, is the gift of giving these tips to his pilots, to his former love interests, to his friends as well. The SEC has taken it a step further and said that he gave these tips to his pilots as a substitute for giving them a retirement plan. In one instance, he actually loaned each of them $500,000 to make trades on a company that was about to post some positive results. Now, do we know how prosecutors found out about this? They say he allegedly abused his access to corporate boardrooms something like over eight years. We don't know exactly how prosecutors came um, across this case. A lot of insider trading prosecutions uh, are referred by the SEC. But looking at the indictment, it's clear to see that they've um, interviewed a lot of witnesses. They've got a lot of WhatsApp messages between the pilots and some of their friends passing on some of these tips they allegedly received from Lewis. In some of the messages, one of the pilots even says, nothing to worry about here. These messages are encrypted, so we're all good. Uh, And that's pretty damning for for Joe Lewis. So he's in the Bahamas, but he came to the U.S. voluntarily. They didn't have to try to extradite him like they did with Sam Bankman-Fried. Joe Lewis lives in the Bahamas, but he came to the U.S. last week as the U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan was announcing charges against him. Uh, He said that he came voluntarily. His lawyer said the charges were ridiculous and that he wanted to come to face them. He turned up to uh, the FBI uh, at about 6.30 in the morning and then was arrested and appeared in court later that day. And what was his demeanour like in court? Joe Lewis appeared in court uh, sitting next to his lawyer. He looked very relaxed, um, if not a little bit stoic. He had a perfectly pressed suit on. He said, um, not guilty, Your Honour. And his path there was all very much arranged through the prosecutors and his lawyers. He'd travelled to the US in the 24 to 48 hours beforehand, surrendered to the FBI earlier that morning, spent a very little time in custody before he was in court, had the bail package all all organised. And this can be very different to how the US government approaches other white-collar cases or any criminal cases. Sometimes they go through people's front door, guns drawn, and pulling people into custody in the early hours of the morning. Tell us about his bail package, which is record-setting. It surpasses Sam Bankman-Fried's by $50 million. This was a custom-made bail package for someone who has, quite frankly, a lot of money. He signed a $300 million bond, and that is secured by his private jet and his super yacht. He can only travel to Florida, Georgia, where he has properties, uh, and to New York as well. He can only use his private jet to travel for court purposes, but he can't even board his super yacht. And what about the other? Do we know, have they been arraigned? 
His two private pilots um, have also been arraigned. They've pleaded not guilty to insider trading. Um, they've also been placed on bail, but their bail packages are, are a lot smaller, around $250,000. Most interesting uh, with his girlfriend is she was named as a defendant in the SEC civil suit, but she's not named or charged uh, by the DOJ. That is interesting and leads one to speculate about why she's not charged. Often that's the sign that someone's cooperating, but we don't know that here. And tell us about the SEC charges. I mean, this is just starting. Is there any indication of the timing of this? Yeah, it could go one of two ways. His lawyer uh, had a very strongly worded statement saying the prosecutor's made an egregious error in charging him and these are essentially baseless accusations. So. Joe Lewis could fight this um, on principle and make a big deal out of it, but that could take a very long time. Trials can be one, two years down the track, and he's 86 years old. Does he want to spend what time he has left uh, in a courtroom in New York? You wouldn't think so, but he could also possibly reach some sort of plea agreement with the prosecutors, which would um, significantly shorten the process. The same goes for the two pilots as well. As far as insider trading, which the Southern District has been known for since Preet Bharara, he has to be one of the most prominent charged with insider trading. Definitely. The U.S. Attorney's Office in Manhattan has made insider trading their bread and butter, and they've got a track record of going after big names in finance, um, big cases. There have been a few prosecutions this year. They announced uh, about just over half a dozen prosecutions in one swoop a few weeks ago, but this is definitely uh, the biggest name in a long time. Thanks so much, Ava. That's Bloomberg legal reporter Ava Benny Morrison. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at CutterEconomicForum.com. Vice Chancellor J. Travis Laster is a judge on Delaware's Court of Chancery. His reputation? A monkish scholar of Delaware law whose exacting style requires that attorneys come to his courtroom highly prepared and who's known for groundbreaking decisions and trying to ensure that the law keeps up with the times. Joining me is Jennifer Kay, correspondent for Bloomberg Law, who interviewed the vice chancellor. One of Judge Laster's first orders after he joined the court back in 2010 was tough and bold. He kicked several attorneys off a case. So, right. So, Vice Chancellor Laster, he had been one of the attorneys litigating cases in the Delaware Court of Chancery for many, many years. He, he understood how the process worked. He had been part of it. And then when he was appointed to the court and stood on the other side, he kind of shook things up because it's a very reserved, kind of uh, cordial, mild-mannered world. And, you know, one of the first things he did in, in one of his first or second year as a judge on the court, he said, you know, these attorneys just weren't adequately pursuing the case. They weren't doing their job the way that they were supposed to. We saw a shareholder lawsuit before proposing a settlement. So he just immediately removed them from the case. And that kind of set the tone for how he was going to proceed as a judge on, on that bench 
you know, going forward, that he was going to hold attorneys to a very high standard, the kind of standard that he holds for himself. And explain for those who don't know what kind of cases come before the Delaware Chancery Court. So this is a kind of unique court in the American legal system. It's a court that has its roots in colonial era cases. Um, It has developed into sort of the main venue for mergers and acquisition cases. It's the main venue for corporate America, basically, because over half of the Fortune 500 companies are registered in Delaware. So when their shareholders are angry with the board or angry with an executive or the company has done something that needs to be investigated, they go to Chancery Court. And there are no juries that hear the cases in Chancery Court. It's just the judges who are hearing the arguments. All the judges on the Delaware Court of Chancery are known as vice chancellors. There's one chancellor and six vice chancellors. He's issued some novel or groundbreaking decisions in the last year. Tell us about some of those. So some of the cases that come before the Chancery Court involve shareholder lawsuits that allege that you know, the corporate executives or the boards of directors ignored critical risk. They saw something going wrong and they didn't do enough to stop it. So some of these are the cases that come before Vice Chancellor Laster. They're known as Caremark cases, and they involve really big companies like Walmart and McDonald's, to name two of them. So some of the rulings he's issued in the last year have involved these major companies who have been accused of not doing enough oversight to prevent something bad from happening. In a case involving McDonald's, the judge, he extended oversight duties from board members to include company executives. He did this in a way that was explicit. He he kind of wrote it down. He wrote it out in a way that no judge had done before. And then there were some other cases. He had some rulings involving Amerisource Bergen and Walmart that were related to opioid litigation and other courts. And what he did was kind of lay out a new way of calculating the statute of limitations for shareholders who want to go after officers or board directors that they say ignored red flags in those opioid cases. So he said, we're not just here for these billion dollar mergers and fights between millionaires and billionaires. What we're here for is to address cases of inequity. His groundbreaking or do his novel decisions often, are they expanding corporate liability or corporate responsibility? They are in a way. The whole point of those kinds of cases is to hold a corporation accountable for something that's gone wrong. And what he started to do is give shareholders a little more leeway in pursuing those cases. These kinds of claims, they're called Caremark claims, they have a reputation for being incredibly difficult for shareholders to win. They can file a lawsuit, but very often when a corporation files a motion to dismiss, the motion to dismiss gets granted because the shareholders haven't been able to prove that something happened within a certain period of time, or they weren't able to show that the executives, let's say, you know, actually had those oversight duties that they were supposed to have. What the vice chancellor's rulings have done is open the door slightly for shareholders who want to hold a corporation accountable for something that's gone wrong. So then I take it he's not beloved by corporate defendants. He has a reputation for being very, very tough on a board. Um, He wants to know that the corporation has 
has done what it's supposed to do in terms of oversight and also in terms of record keeping. He's not going to take it lightly if a board comes to him with uh, books and records that don't seem complete or, or seem to be lacking information that is sought by shareholders. But overall, he, you know, he doesn't have a reputation necessarily of, of being lenient on shareholders or tough on corporations. His real reputation is that he's very tough on the attorneys bringing these cases. He wants to know that the attorneys for either side have done their due diligence and, and all of their homework and will be able to answer any question he, that he comes up with in court. Let's talk about the criticism of him. Some say he's going out of his way to rewrite the law and imposing his sense of fairness in cases that really call for a more moderate decision. What his critics say that he's doing that isn't really the Delaware way of doing things is that he's making these novel rulings when he doesn't necessarily have to. For example, in a McDonald's case where he expanded officer liability, he expanded liability for the corporate executives. That kept the case alive for about a month before he tossed out the litigation completely for procedural reasons. And his critics say, look, you know, this case wasn't going to proceed past the motion to dismiss. He didn't need to expand liability in writing so explicitly the way that he did. If the case wasn't going to succeed, why not just let the case be dismissed without making this extra ruling? You know, the criticism really is kind of like the guy does too much work. But his response to that is, you know, look, this question of officer liability, it keeps coming up in other cases. When the judge sees something come up case after case, he says he just he wants to answer it. So when this question of officer liability came up in a McDonald's case, he decided, you know, now's the time to answer it. I've noticed it enough. It's, it's time we all have an answer and whether the rest of the case should proceed or not. So are his decisions affecting what happens in corporate boards? Yes. What Vice Chancellor Lowe and really what the Court of Chancery does overall is set the tone for how corporations govern themselves. Again, because you have so many big household name companies registered in Delaware for a variety of reasons, often tax reasons, what happens in Chancery Court is that it sets kind of a guideline for how a board or how executives are going to run the company. Then everybody's kind of working on the rule book in a way. So is he sort of, you know, a one-man attempt to make the law keep up with the times? Or are other judges in Delaware doing the same thing, only maybe perhaps with a little less flash or attention? I think it's a little bit of both. I think that one thing that, that this judge does is try to keep the law current with what's happening, like in the greater context of what's happening in corporate America. He tends to show more personality than the other judges on the court who are, you know, maybe they're not looking at exactly the same cases, but kind of broadly, they're all looking at this question of, well, what does the current law say? And, and what does that mean for, you know, companies that are trying to merge or companies that are trying to undo a merger because the shareholders are unhappy with it? He has a bit more panache, I guess, when he's delivering these rulings. You uh, write about his exacting style, and he said, and you know, the line between a decision being accurate and a decision being idiotic is unfortunately a quite narrow one. Tell us how he approaches these cases and, you know, his 
exacting style? He is known for being a very constructive but very critical editor. That's what some of his former law clerks told me. They said he was nice about it, but he would completely shred their work. <laughs> and because he wanted to get to the heart of a case and wasn't going to let someone's writing kind of get in the way of that. He's as hard on the attorneys in front of him as he is on his law clerks. Uh, I've heard him refer to a complaint as sloppy and word salad when he was dismissing a complaint earlier this year. His style is, is very much take no prisoners in a way, but he's doing it in service of corporate law and not just, you know, to be kind of mean or, or critical about it. So on a personal level, he was described as a monkish scholar of Delaware law. The monkish is the word that came up more than once when talking <laughs> with his law clerks and with uh, other attorneys who, who come before him. Everyone uh, who comes before him knows that they really have to do their homework, that they have to know, you know, maybe what the history of a law is or, you know, not just, you know, the case law, but maybe something contextual about the case law, because there's a good chance that he will bring up that sort of information in court and they need to be prepared to answer that. He's known for, you know, taking time and, and writing long opinions or delivering a bench ruling, you know, over the course of an hour to give you not just his opinion on something, but here's every case he's looked at in, in forming that opinion, you know, going into the case law history, say, here's why I'm deciding the way that I'm deciding it. And, you know, he was described to me as someone who is a searcher, someone who is searching for information, for the truth, for the greater view of what's happening. And to that end, he's been studying Buddhism for a number of years now. And he said, you know, this is because he's really attracted to Buddhist principles about you know, being flexible in your point of view, that not everything has a fixed point, that you don't need to be stuck to one way of looking at something or one way of thinking about something, even if your previous opinion in a case or a previous opinion in a similar case was one way, you can look at a new case and look at it in a different way and, and come to a different conclusion and be more flexible you know, with your perspective. He's someone who really deeply, you know, as all judges, he's really deeply considering the case in front of him. He's just bringing a little bit more of a scholarly reputation to it. How much is the caseload for Delaware judges increasing? And how is that frustrating him? So, yes, the Court of Chancery is a very, very busy court. They have chancellors, six vice chancellors who all have a full docket. There are a number of cases that they actually assign to magistrates and chancery to handle things like estates or, or property-related disputes just to kind of lighten their corporate caseload. Earlier this year, there was very much a tidal wave of cases related to blank check mergers. And, you know, Laster, you know, called that situation a SPAC apocalypse because it, it was just taking up so much of the court's time overall to go through all of these cases that were, were so similar. And he said, look, yes, this is what we're here for, but this overwhelming caseload threatens to undermine our decision making. We want to make good decisions. We don't want to be making them in a way that is rushed, you know, that we're not jumping to a conclusion because we're not taking enough time with a case. And he has kind of complained about this publicly, he says, because he wants attorneys to 
be on notice that they can be part of the solution instead of being part of the problem with litigation that maybe if attorneys are bringing a case that shouldn't be there, he'd rather that they didn't, that they would think about it a little bit beforehand so that he doesn't have to spend time dismissing something that shouldn't be there. Interesting story. Interesting judge. Thanks so much, Jennifer. That's Jennifer Kay, correspondent for Bloomberg Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news on our Bloomberg Law podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at www.bloomberg.com slash podcast slash law. And remember to tune into the Bloomberg Law Show every weeknight at 10 p.m. Wall Street time. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.